0: This program is brought to you by Joule, sous vide by Chef Steps. Jewel takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. The topic? Restaurants and rules. Some rules are based on religion. This makes for an unusual scene in a Manhattan restaurant. A shy 20-year-old dictating the kitchen standards to a humble veteran chef. While other rules promote health and safety. But who are these feared rule keepers with the power to shut a restaurant down? They're not really like food food lovers. Some restaurant rules fall outside the domain of the kitchen. All civil rights
1: issues have basically, uh, at one point or another, revolved around the bathroom.
0: For more, tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: We talk about food.
0: We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky tunes. Hey, hello everyone. We're, we're ready, finally. Sorry about that. Thank you guys so much for coming. My name is Kristen Ofria. I'm the new membership director here at Noya House Hollywood. I'm really excited to be a part of this house, and for those of you that are members, I'm looking forward to getting to know you better in the next few weeks. Noya House is a membership space for creatives and entrepreneurs, and our programming truly reflects that. It is focused through the lens of the new and the contemporary. We are so excited this evening to welcome Ignacio Matos, the James Beard Award-nominated chef behind some of your favorite acclaimed New York eateries, and Darren Bresnitz, the co-host of podcast, Snacky Tunes. Tonight will be recorded as a Snacky Tunes episode to be aired at a later date. They'll be discussing Ignacio's debut cookbook, Estella, named after his flagship restaurant, his journey, and of course, his food. Please help me welcome Ignacio Matos and Darren Bresnitz.
1: Hello. Hello, hello.
2: Hi everyone, thank you so much for coming. I uh, appreciate it. Uh, Ignatius Montes, welcome.
1: Hi. Thank you so Hi. much. Thank you, Larry. Uh,
2: beautiful cookbook, have you all bought a copy? What? You... That was a very, very what? soft afterwards, afterwards. Well, we got one, thank you, Laura. Thank you so much. It's a beautiful cookbook. Uh, it's a lot of fun um, and before we get into the design of the cookbook, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Talk about uh, where you grew up. You grew up in Uruguay. Uruguay,
1: yeah. Um, Uruguay, Uruguay,
2: Uruguay. Uruguay. I, you know, I spent. I was like, this is gonna be the first question, and I spent a long time pronouncing it. And I go, you know, I, what, you're just gonna butcher it, so it doesn't even matter. Uh, no worries.
1: I I will butcher a lot of the stuff. So
2: um, you know, Uruguay is interesting because it's not a country that even now with uh, everyone knowing about global cuisines that. Is sort of on the map and you talk about that in the intro of your book that it sort of has this chip on its shoulder from a culinary point of view
1: yeah i, I mean it's, it's not a much history behind it and it's kind of a shame in comparison with the rest of south america i don't know argentina it's a lot of regions that it has like indigenous cuisine that mm-hmm. it gets blended and they have this criollo style uh, brazil they, i mean literally every single country of south america has it but you know mexico yes. like way too much history like and so yeah it's kind of embarrassing but it's but it has. Eat, coming from a place and people <laughs> expect to have this cuisine and this cuisine is like you know spanish and italian
2: it's, it's got a, a lot of colonial influences, yeah. but it has all the trappings of what you look for. It's got great farming, it's great fishing, it's great hunting. I mean, it's a it's a cornucopia of ingredients and bounty.
1: Yeah, it's good home cooking. You know, like I grew up uh, eating really good home cooking, and your, like, your grandma you know, cooked, right? Yeah, grandma cooked, and spend time in the farm. So you know, it's a whole process, and you're getting really good ingredients. Um, but it's yeah, it's nothing really that special. I would like to say, you know, no signature dish. We do barbecues as it's, it's, they're called asados, mm-hmm. and yes, like you kind of eat the whole cow, but it's pretty primal and basic. Salt and meat and fire and cold, yeah, and and, and fire. So that's pretty much, and then it, the staples are to you know, everyone's surprised is it that Italian and Spanish dishes, you know, like pascolina. is like, but you speak to a new person and they think it's from there, you right. know, and it comes come from Genoa. Uh, yeah. Right. Liguria.
2: Um, you started cooking at an early age with your grandma. Uh, you were responsible for the salad courses uh, for the dinner, yeah. uh, which is a low lift, but you know, it's a good place to start. Um, what did you learn making salads back then? What did you, anything that you started doing then that you've taken with you all the way through today?
1: Going back to the book, I think the salad chapter is incredible. It's maybe that yeah. speaks for all this, all this time spent figuring out salads, but yeah, I don't know. I always find it appealing and fun and interesting to do salads and yeah, I just I just love eating salad, and I also think it's that this underdog that always everybody just thinks it's like, oh, salad, you know, nobody wanna really want to eat it, and so I, I find I, I find it interesting to to pick up those kind of things, you know, things that people don't really care, like salads, and make it, wow, this, you know, end up salad, and deep salad, it's like oh, yeah. the best thing that I ever eaten, and I was like, yeah, a salad. Um, <laughs> Or, you know, or perhaps an ingredients, you know, like uh, champignons, like. Love it. Andives, you know, they're all forgotten kind of ingredients, celery. Like, who want to eat celery, you know? I mean, Depending if you're making much.
2: celery, I'll eat some celery. Yeah, but.
1: Yeah, that's fair enough.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you also talked about in the book about. Uh, well, you allude to it that growing up, that you sort of got into trouble, that you were a bit of. Running around the streets and things like that, um but then cooking was a way that centered you. How did you get into cooking? What were you pushing up against what were you What were you uh rebelling against back in the day?
1: Who knows? else' <laughs> stupid stuff that's what we always do. no, but I think it had to do with like feeding. you know I think that's a struggle that uh, you know the, the more and more I talk to people. It's just finding your place and, and being able to fit and like there were different outlets that provide me uh you know this embrace. But the kitchens, you know, there were these places that you were needed. Yeah. Um you had to hold accountable, there were structured, there was good food. Uh there was discipline? It was discipline, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it was Fascinating, but also seeing all these people like just like working together, you know, and respecting each other, and you know, and making stuff happen. But
2: yeah, did you find that kitchens gave you a purpose in life? And when you found that purpose at a young age, because you were started cooking in your late teenagers, did you immediately know that this is what you wanted to do?
1: yeah absolutely I, I feel that I also get extremely lucky. I found that you know I was sixteenth.
2: How did you get your first job? Uh, first my
1: I, I think it was a friend of my mom and he, she has this catering company and there were these old two old ladies and they would work only overnight because they couldn't sleep so I had to work overnight and it was really weird. Yeah. Because it would start at 11.30 at night and I was like, really? This is like the time that we want to start working? (laughs) Anyway, so I had to work around their schedule and it was like, it, it was fun. It was fun to have conversations with them and like, you know, like I couldn't, at that time I couldn't get along with my grandmother or my mom, but like these two ladies, they were like, just like, you know, I was... They needed me, I was doing the job and- Sounds like you needed them too. Yeah, yeah. totally.
2: Yeah. Um, wh- now you're working with them and you eventually make your way to professional kitchens. Yeah. Um, what was that jump like? Because obviously working with two older women in a catering company at night is different than, you know, being in a kitchen, being out in the world, having probably a little bit more of a structure in a professional setting.
1: Yeah, they were professional settings. So I started I, I start going to culinary school and I spent the first year, there's supposed to be two years, and that first year I did as many internships as possible. And halfway through, you know, like half of that year, it, it was a lot of disappointment. You know, a lot of the kitchens, they weren't what kitchens are today. What year was this? Uh, I think it was 97, 98, something like that down there. So it wasn't it wasn't this like charming and exciting place to be, you know. They were like a little bit rough around the edges and no, uh, that appealing. And somehow I ran into stamp stumbled into Francis Malman's kitchen, and it was a completely different world, you know. Like looking at his records, looking at his books on the shelf, and the taste it it was a you know just looking at the food tasting the food everything was cohesive you know everything makes sense uh in the other places you know i would go and you know the dining rooms the design it was like completely awkward it didn't match the food the food didn't taste that good uh everything at francis uh it makes sense you know it was cohesive in some sort of way so when does
2: you know someone like Francis Malman come into your life? When does he start to inspire you to go beyond just prep work or cooking or things like that? When do you start to have your own creative thoughts? When does your process and your own personal journey start into making the food that eventually would become what you're known for?
1: You know, when you were for Francis and I, I just was here in Miami, uh, like ten days ago, and we having a conversation about this about somebody that was cooking with him. For him, it's very simple. It's his language. It's his way. You don't want it. You can go. You know. I mean, it's great. And and he's not willing to compromise. So I don't know. I I spend, yeah, yeah crazy six years working with him. So we have our time. I, I think the last two years, they were a little bit intense you know we will get into big arguments no we will, we will have huge arguments about food and this and that you know he was he was really into also i started being into charring everything and i was like i oh, don't i don't think it makes sense so i didn't want to chart things and he would get really upset <laughs> with me <laughs> and
2: you like pull back on that flame dude and he's like no
1: well but now he's not charring he's hanging stuff and cooking very slowly did and it, i'm like and i was you? just like why when all these things happen you know like no, late, 14 no. years ago you were just he was really upset People back have, then
2: but you knew what you're getting into it was his way or the highway and i
1: i get it i understand but you know it's and and i accept that but i think it's i, I don't know there's always room for dialogue yeah i think is there room I think for dialogue so. in your kitchen it is yeah yeah there's room Yeah, a lot.
2: Okay. Um, And after you left for... I
1: I learned. I'm saying that it's always been like that, but it is. Well, it wasn't always like that. No, but it is. There is now. It's been for a while.
2: Have you seen... And you've seen him since? Has Has he recognized that maybe he was a little...
1: He doesn't care. He
2: doesn't care. Yeah, he doesn't care. That guy. That guy is set. He
1: cares a lot. He's a he's a dear friend, but you know, when he, when he get to certain things, he's just like it's just the way it is. He's Francis and, Momin. He's Francis Momin. Um and,
2: Now, after you have Francis, you actually spent some time in the states cooking at two legendary San Francisco restaurants, Cafe Zuni, and then Chez Panis, yeah. Which, you know, uh, to go to the states and to land there, and especially San Francisco at that time, with working with farms and seeing what. The possibilities of American uh, farming could be like, and, and and culture and cuisine. How did that add to your your learnings?
1: I mean, it was mind blowing. I mean, Alice first, Waters, Alice Waters, Judy Rogers. I, I mean, Judy Rogers is like it was, but still, like it's it's incredibly how she influenced people her way of thinking about food. It was like you know that was my first encounter with California with Judy Rogers at Suni Cafe, and then Alice and the whole Japanese culture and and work came up. But yeah, California was mind-blowing, absolutely. Like the whole products, you know, because we will get good products with vegetables, but it wasn't like, it was like, wow.
2: I mean, the distribution back then was not what it is today Uh, for most restaurants. It was still these antiquated chains, yeah. and it wasn't organic and things like that. So to you know to be to show up at these restaurants, in France Francis or Chez Panisse or Zuni Cafe or something like that. it make it sound like I'm Chuck Pippin or something. No, that's but like, I'm just I, what I'm saying is that you know how it's, many years ago was that? Five <laughs> years. So ag-
1: five years yeah. ago. Okay, fair. Um, that's
2: fair but, enough. But you know, it's it's uh it's all this discovery that you don't that's not immediate. You know, because now I can pop online, I can see what's going on over there, but to show up you know, at these harrowed places and to see something that blows your mind is going to be truly awesome and unique.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it definitely was. And but also like seeing this blend of, you know, like seeing a Sunni or a Japanese, like this blend of, I don't call it fusion, but, you know, they would utilize all these different ingredients and spices from different cuisines, you know, and they would blend it and that was a Californian. Postmodern. Yeah, but smaller than. Yeah, I like
2: it. Yeah, pull a little bit here and there. Um, now, I know you spent time in Europe and you spent time in Brazil, but I want to make sure we talk about you getting to New York. What eventually drew you to, at the time, was New York's greatest food city uh, in yeah. America?
1: So the first uh, was with Francis. We was, we opened something in, in the Hamptons and then we're supposed to do something in the city it felt true. I went around and traveled a little bit everywhere, Europe, Brazil, and ended up in Brazil. And then I get an offer to go back and uh, work as a chef at a place called Il Buco, oh, yeah. which it is a beautiful institution on Bond Street in Manhattan. Uh, again, uh, having access to some of the best Italian. It's amazing. Product, I mean, and local, but, you know, like utilizing this olive oil from this family that's been doing olive oil from 1600s, you know, mid 1600s. That's, and they have trees that old in the property. So stuff like that, you know, like, and doing our own charcuteries and, you know, doing sourcing these crazy pigs just for those charcuterie. Um, Yeah, New York at the time was, yeah, probably one of the best culinary places in the world. In the world. But yeah, all of a sudden everything just like flipped and now you have, you know, amazing food here. I know. I mean, we could spend
2: the rest of the time talking about how great LA is and the food scene. Uh, But New York was really setting a lot of boundaries and... While you cooked, time in the city, then you also wound up in Brooklyn, which is where oh, I first met you. Well,
1: yeah.
2: you were in Manhattan, then you went to Isa, right?
1: That was, yeah. I've been talking about a lot about Issa. Issa was a, a great,
2: crazy, res- crazy, crazy restaurant. It's the type of place that you hope to find in any city because it feels it felt like it shouldn't exist and it was wild, but it was also centered. It had the open, it had the fire. It had these great dishes. You know, the menu was always changing. Uh, what drew you to Issa? What made it so special?
1: We wanted, we wanted to have fun. We wanted to be creative. Um, we wanted also to try to elevate the food offered uh, in New York uh, at the time. I don't know. It was a a Parisian influence. It was an influence from places like Le Chateaubriand in Paris. Mm. Um, Nice. And we want to keep it accessible. So yeah, we started messing around. We talked to Tavo that uh, was the owner at the time. And we just hit it right off the bat. And you know, it was a pretty influential place at the time. It was a before and then so. after. Yeah. I was just thinking about like, the people that were there. They were like the Contra guys. They yep. were there. Uh, Pam and Jose from Semilla were there. Frederick from Aska was there. Yeah. Uh,
2: it's always amazing when you see a place that just right place, right time, right food, and then you blink and it's sort of gone. I mean, it was.
1: Yeah. It yeah. was there
2: and then it was over.
1: It was too much craziness going on into that in the give me place. One, give me one story. Like the, No, no, no. I'm not talking about the stories. I'm just talking about the place itself. It was just like <laughs> too disorienting for most people. Yeah. You know, the menu was all these collages that they were pure insanity. Like uh, it, yeah. influence on, you know, hippie stuff from the 60s and psychodelia. And then we were doing this menu that it was really esoteric and you you know, it sounds like very simple. Another time, you get this kind of weird-looking food, uh, but the bathroom was just not. Just going to the bathroom, it would take you forty minutes to get out of it because it was a lot in there. Uh, but but yeah, and then all of a sudden, it's just you know, it was a love-hate kind of relationship with a lot of people. Some yeah. people absolutely love it. Me. I mean, we can go on and on. Yeah, it's a I lot know, of people love it, but it's a lot of people. A lot of people hated it. People were upset about it, and I don't know why. I mean... It was cheap.
2: I think you were sort of pulling from your Francis Moman playbook where it was, this is what we're going to do, and you can stay and eat and get it, what we're doing, or you can, you know, go somewhere else.
1: Yeah, well, we need some... Like the equation there. We, we need some... The, yeah, the numbers didn't add up. The numbers so. didn't add up. Yeah, so um, it all true.
2: So you know, to go from a place like Isa, which was this sort of avant garde, just sort of rollicking experiment, uh, to a place that was more fine dining, and I don't want to say buttoned up because I don't want to say that Isa wasn't buttoned up, but something that was much more um, of a like sit down fine dining ish experience mm-hmm. with Estella. How did you start to make that journey? And did you, because, you know, Estella is sort of, that's, I'm not saying that's what put you on the map, but that was, you know, it's such a big restaurant, you know, the, Barack Obama ate there with his wonderful wife and things like that. But what I'm saying is that it feels like that Estella was a culmination of all the stuff that you had been working up to, to when you opened those doors.
1: Yeah. I want to, yeah. I was just talking with a landlord the other day and uh, he's like, I wish I'd charged you more rent. Well, we were having a, a little conversation, yeah, related to rent or whatever, and he's, he's like, well, you told me you were going to open a wine bar, and all of a sudden you open this fancy restaurant, it's like the president came here, like, I wasn't expecting any of that, he was kind of upset, I'm yeah. like, dude, for real, I was... It's a New York
2: landlord, what do you expect?
1: Yeah, he's a good, he's a really good guy. He's, the, uh,
2: he's a good enough guy.
1: It is, you know, uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty good for these days. But
2: but uh, but how did the, what was the creative process? Because you leave ISA and you could you could sort of done. You had a, the cachet to do whatever you wanted. How did you land? What was the the origin story of Estella?
1: Well, it was a little bit of a bittersweet kind of uh, taste that ISA left me. Just because you know this avant garde desire of you know just trying things for the sake of trying and the fun and the creativity and and people not being able to respond or connect with it or like that a certain group of people were able to connect and why this other percentage of people weren't able to connect. So I was like, you know, a a man of, I'm a Libra, so I'm, I'm a man of balance. So I go from one extreme to the other. So then I'm like, oh, well, fuck it. Let's do very Dumb down food let's do it very simple straightforward i'm gonna i love steak and fries but i was like i'm gonna do steak and fries like I, i'm gonna get bored yeah but i was like and or like canned food with like some toast oh right 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 like the spanish style yeah,
2: yeah so i
1: was like very direct very straightforward so I, we did that for two weeks so it was a lot of these friends like you that would come onto to the restaurant and gave that girl the book and everybody would look at each other like, what's going on here? Well, you it, know?
2: it felt that you had put away uh, a part of your creativity and it was, it's like you go to see a band play and then they just, they play like light covers of yeah. Yacht Rock and you're like, I know you can shred. Why aren't you shredding in my face right now? Uh... Just open it up.
1: Yeah, and two weeks later I was like, okay, let's play it? with this.
2: What was that switch? Like was it was it a was it a, a soft movement in your brain or was it a jolt out of bed in the middle of night saying you gotta do something different?
1: I was difficult. It was like every day just grappling with this thing, you know, being pulled in different directions and trying to figure it out where the right place it was that I want it to be like how far I can push it and like, where was that line of, but like trying to come up with a language. I think that was the most difficult thing. And like making, keeping the integrity of what I believe like the food should be. Uh, But also, I really wanted 95% of the people to unquestionably like it.
2: Did you feel that you wanted to get those people who doubted Issa on yeah. your side?
1: Yeah. I want to prove them wrong. wrong.
2: Yeah, that's fair.
1: Yeah. Um, I did.
2: You mentioned <laughs> you did I mean, yeah. the world has recognized. And you just mentioned about creating a new language. And it's interesting because at the places you've worked at, if you look at the pedigree, they all have their own language. Like Chez Panis is a language. Francis, Zuni, that language how did you come about creating a language? Because you have a certain aesthetic, you know, the shapes that you love, like circles, you do fermentations, you do you know, uh, sorts of curings. Like, How do you start to build this uh, you know, board of words, you know, this sort of playlist or playbook uh, for a new restaurant? And how much time does it take to, to get it completed?
1: Yeah, it, it, it takes a little bit of time. I I I still feel that we are on, on the process of I think we have the language but five years in I'm like the same idea. It's like this is all I have. Like like let's let's push a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But also we have to understand what it is that the place is and kind of keep it true to that essence. Uh but what you need it's 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 just a sense of time and place. Mm. i think the most important thing is like understanding where we are and then under- understanding the time i think at the time it makes complete sense i don't know if it made complete sense but it was a- an opportunity to do the thing you know like it was like five years ago five and a half years ago it was this whole scandinavian boom
2: oh yeah which
1: is amazing but I think it makes sense in Scandinavia. I don't think it makes sense in downtown New York. I think
2: I felt like there was a time when every restaurant was opening up had was either Scandinavian or Nordic or had some sort of you know Northern Europe sort of tinge to it.
1: Yeah, and the dishware and everything is just from the, the from the Noma cookbook, which is an amazing cookbook. It's beautiful. Yeah, but I was like, I'm. This doesn't make sense here. So. It was a combination of all these elements, just realizing, okay, this is... Everybody's doing this thing. What if we do this other thing here on the other side? Um, And also understanding what I could source in New York City. Like what were those ingredients? So I started breaking the menu into these ingredients that were really good and I knew that I could get it consistently. Uh, Consistency was that other essential part. That for me a restaurant has to provide and it goes back to time when you know my grandmother would cook like I would know that I could go at noon to her house no matter what and I would be food on the table yeah. and I know I will find these comforting things. So for I associate food through that comfort, right? And that consistency um and kind of sense of security. So I wanted the restaurant also to be that kind of place. So as I started breaking it down, start realizing it that I liked restaurants that I know that I can get these very specific things. Uh, but I want those things, not just to be the traditional tartar that 152 restaurants have in yep. New York. I wanted to have our own tartar. So what it is that it takes to do that particular tartar? Uh, you know, muscles, you know, like you could get muscles, but you get massive pro and salt, and I love them. But we do an escabeche with them, you know, and it became like a staple. Um, uh, the same thing, even like the burrata, that is a very simple thing, but and, and it's always a, a bit of humor into what I do, you know, like it's, everybody, it's playful, it's yeah. playful
2: food. I mean, it's serious, but there's it, it's it's there's a levity,
1: yeah. But at the time, yeah, totally. But, you know, perhaps at that time it was this whole boom of choosing green shoes and like, everybody was choosing and choosing. I was like, what if I want to put shoes in the food, you know? I mean, this is kind of, I love shoes, but it was kind of funny. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to put it in, just put it into the burrata and, yeah. you know, and it works and it's delicious. Uh, but it's also decadent at the same time. So having, finding this balance, you know, I like to also feel good when I go out and eat, you know? We were just talking, uh, having a little conversation about that. And that's another part. I think it's restaurants, they need to provide a little bit of both, you know? Uh, They need to, you you should feel good after you eat. And I think people forget about that. So Mm. it was uh, all these things that I needed to, be able to uh, achieve, but also keep, keep it pushing and finding new ways and keep the menu going. And the menu has evolved, but it's those classics, you They're are there. able to get it, yeah. yeah. And they keep getting better.
2: Yeah, now five years in, so many recipes and awards and, and press. When do you start thinking about a book? Why do you feel that you need to have a book? Because you guys are successful. You know, you have a full house every night. You have a story that's well-known. What makes you think that on top of running a restaurant, and not just one, you have multiple restaurants, that you also want to go into the endeavor of writing a cookbook?
1: I think to just put it on paper and say, these are our dishes. Mm. These are ours. And put in the story behind it. That's it. Just documenting it. And having it there and actually it's it's like a great tool also the restaurant you know now that we have the book it's it's really helpful for the cooks to understand a little bit better so you, now know, you don't have to talk to them at all no at, at go all to page, page yeah, 63 exactly no <laughs> no the whole conversation is there but it's definitely well no allows them to process and understand at their own time what right. it is that we talking about when we talking about food that we, we have meetings every Wednesday, uh, a, a general meeting with all the kitchen. We do R and D on that day. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's helpful. It's pretty helpful, but also, yeah, it's a great tool in many different ways. It's also, it looks beautiful at the restaurant.
2: It's a beautiful <laughs> book that you all should buy as soon as we stop talking. Um, what's your creative approach to putting the book together? Cause obviously launching a restaurant is a completely different endeavor. Um, did you have a sense of what you wanted to be before you got into it or did putting it down on paper sort of decide what the
1: book turned out to be? I, I wanted to be a, a, a cookbook that people were going to use. I didn't want it to be a coffee table uh, cookbook. And it's kind of, you know, when you think about the food at the restaurant, it's, yeah, it, it's a certain aesthetic into it and the food it can be beautiful But it's delicious. It's straight up delicious. Like deliciousness is never compromised. So trying to communicate, like try to achieve that on the book, it was quite challenging. I think we uh, were able to get it right. But uh, yeah, and a lot of the food, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the food in there, but it's a lot of the stuff. It just looks like a pile of, a blanket of color greens
2: there's a lot of layers in there's layers
1: tree. It's stuff is hidden so you cannot really see it so it's, it's like you know you shoot the thing it just looks it's just not that appealing you know which was the original idea but at the restaurant did
2: you go and pitch that to the publisher it's a non appealing cookbook
1: listen they wanted to they wanted to do it I, I was like listen I, we don't have to do this but they really insisted <laughs> So I'm like, okay, how we wanna do this in a way that makes sense. So yeah, like muscling up the whole process of photographing the book and uh, how to present all that layering whenever the layering it comes to place. Um, but above all, yeah, it was just to make the book accessible for most people. How to make the cooking that we do, that I believe is very simple, accessible to everyone. Because whatever is simple for me, it might not be simple for you. And Well, thank you. It's re- not that simple for me. No, but realizing that, you know, like the different uh, levels on cooking skills, No, I mean, there. It,
2: it's, it is having eaten your food and, and knowing the type of chef you are, it did actually surprise me about how approachable it was for the at-home chef. It's not, the pantry isn't crazy. The ingredients aren't too out there. And it's a a forgiving book in many ways that allows you to have a little bit of your own creativity with it. Yeah. Um, How did you curate the the recipes? uh, Since you have so many, what story were you trying to tell through the dishes that you put in there?
1: I mean, the classics, absolutely. But then... Things that make sense for the home cook, you know? It's like, I really want to have this abalone dish, Mm -hmm. but, you know, it didn't make any sense. So the publisher is like, no. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. You you know, like it it, it was no point to, you know, it it was good to have them reminding you, you know what I mean? Like this is it's good. It's good to incorporate this into, incorporating this into um, their pantry or like uh, the repertoire, but there was this line, you know, like we do this, also was this dish of, uh, actually the other day someone here in LA, we were doing some event and it was like, he brought this dish, it's it's a cuttlefish and daikon and the cuttlefish and the daikon are cut in the same way. They look the same. You cannot tell which one is which, right. but it's a play on textures, and it's really a, a really beautiful dish. And actually, it's my favorite dish, and I really want it on the book. And they were like, "No."
2: I mean, cuttlefish is a tough sell.
1: Yeah, and I was like, "Okay." It was, you know, a little bit disappointed. So it, yeah, it was a little tough to decide what or what not to put. But you know, we have this egg salad that is actually one oh, that of my egg salad's good. Yeah, and it's one of my favorite things to eat. And like, why? not putting the egg salad that people are going to ended up making it a lot more times than, and it was going to help them to improve their egg salad yeah. rather than doing an abalone dish that you never do. you know.
2: I mean, what, you know, if there was one thing that you wanted readers and chefs and people who have this book, uh, who may have never been to the restaurant to take away from it, you know, what's the story you're trying to tell? What do you want people to take away from this book?
1: Uh, the food is you know that is it's quite easy to cook I, I want to encourage people to cook more at home rather you know I'm not saying that I wanted to come to the restaurant oh no but please don't but it's it, it, for me it's very important to make people more knowledgeable about what it is that it goes into into food and I think it's possible not to make it in an intimidating way. What you were saying earlier is it's a lot of cookbooks that, that are really discouraging. You know, you are like.
2: Once I see a cookbook that's dealing in grams and things like that, it's sort of. It, I start to sort of go, I'm not really ever going to cook from this because I don't have a scale and I'm not going to get these mm. powders and things like that. Like the Noma cookbook is fantastic, but you need to set up a whole
1: lab. Man, we did a whole book in ounces and the publisher all of a sudden is like, I think we should change it to grams. I'm like, no. 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 No way. No. That's no. your line in the
2: sound. Ounces versus grams?
1: Yeah. No, and I come from grams. You come and, from grams. And now switch. No, it's too complicated. No, no it's it's good.
2: All my uh, equipment still works in the book uh, for my kitchen at home. Um, now, before we open it up to questions, there is, the book is great. And I'm not mm-hmm. just saying I, I really enjoy it, but there's a quote in there that I love that I'd like you to expand on a little bit. It says, even if you have no idea what you're doing, be confident. And I loved it because it really speaks to a lot of the food you make and your career and things like that. But it's a good, it comes in the beginning of the, in the book and it's a great thing to have as an inspiration before you sit down to cook in dishes you may have never thought about cooking before. What's the idea behind that sentiment? Why does that mean so much to you?
1: For me, it's very important that we all understand, like just like follow our our instinct, mm-hmm. and also train our senses. So, you know, it, it's a little bit of a talk on the book about you know understanding how to taste food and what to look after. You know, um, so yes, uh, I think it's important that we don't overthink certain things and just run with it and if it's you know I think it didn't come perfect it's close enough and like you you want to be able to replicate those dishes at least the recipes on this book that all you know it's like a few of them that are a little bit complicated mm-hmm. like they take a little bit they're not complicated they take time like the lamb ribs and the rice Yeah. Uh, but for the most part they're all things that you can just do it over and over. And like, as you do it the second, the third time, you figure it out what you did wrong. By the fourth time, you have it nailed. But even if it's not exactly however it is on the book, even if the recipes are accurate, like you start making it your own, you know, it's the, that's the beauty of cooking. You know, we were talking about that. It is impossible to replicate things. Like we strive every single day to replicate dishes at the restaurant. And I think it's really beautiful how, how it would change if you do it and like you do it and whoever it is that is doing, like this individual touch, it's, it's, it's quite unique. You can have the same ingredients. You can follow the same steps. I mean, we do this at the restaurant. Yeah. As, as an experiment and it's a complete different thing. So... Define that as a as a chef. It's, it's it's because it's it's impossible. It's very gratifying to try to defy that on on a daily basis because the nature is that it's not meant to. Um, so yeah, the whole point is like of no overthinking it. It's just like make it your own, you know. Uh, feel comfortable. We all know like what's delicious, and all like yeah, right. If it feels good for you, that's who cares, you know, who cares what I think, if it's delicious or not.
2: Well, I mean, if I make your food and you think it's bad, I would care.
1: I know if I go to your house and we're doing that, but the the other way, like, I don't know if like whoever you brought over or like the family's happy, that's all that matters.
2: Yeah. Um, one last question (laughs) before uh, we open up, uh, do you feel that where the restaurant is and with the book that this has sort of been a culmination of your creative process? Do you feel that you have captured everything that you have strived for up to this point, And now you can just keep pushing yourself into the future. Yeah. Feel free to expand.
1: No, I'm 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 processing, but no, I'm on a daily basis I'm questioning myself like all these things. I the think it's like finding the time and the balance on dedicating. So right now the biggest challenge is just finding time to do cooking. You know, so right now, you know, running the businesses and there's always things pulling you and taking you away from what you are actually really good at it. So right now the the exercise is finding more time to do these things that I love doing, that is cooking and having room for, you know, create and expand and like find different ways. And it's three restaurants, so, you know, a lot. it gets funny sometimes, you know, you come up with a dish in a, in a in the ground restaurant, you know? So like, you had to always be catching up which dish makes sense where-
2: It's three card monte of- dishes. Yeah, but
1: you're working with a team and then you're like, no, no, this, this is not for here. Like, sorry, <laughs> but like, forget about that. That's gonna go to Florida. And yeah. But
2: Don't we did something over there. It'll come here. Well, Ignacio, thank you so
1: much. Thank you, Darren.
2: It's a beautiful book and I really think it captures the soul and the story of Estella. So c- congrats. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, um, thank you. We have time for questions. Does anyone have any questions? Oh, all right. We got a question right kind here. Hold give on. Mi- you a mic. Microphones because we coming. We have
0: the podcast to think about. So. Wow, um, What do you like to eat when you're at home? Well, like, well, how do you cook for yourself?
1: It's embarrassing. <laughs> um.
2: You don't open up that cookbook. Cook from it.
1: I'm so lazy at home. Uh, Steamed vegetables and fish with olive oil. Yeah. And it has to do with, you know, like eating at the restaurant most of the time and like everything is like seasoned to such a high level that I I just need a break. I just need, or it's like raw cashews or apples. Like I, I cannot handle... Acidity, I cannot handle richness. It just need to be clean and and flat. I need a yeah. It's that's what I do, and also I don't want much smell in the house either.
2: Well, I mean, you're cooking fish at home, though.
1: But it's steam. It's like yeah, greasy yeah, it's and messy yeah. and.
2: Fair enough. Over there. Oh.
1: Yeah.
0: What makes LA different from New York in terms of cooking or restaurant, the restaurant scene? Uh, what do you think is special about LA and why haven't you started a restaurant here as yet?
2: Are
1: you going to join mm-hmm. the hordes of New York I, chefs I, coming I out? I don't like this whole New York invasion. I'm sorry, but <laughs> so I would love to, but I can't do it right now just because it's too many people from New York coming here. But going back to where you asked... I, I think it's something really refreshing here, like in California, in general, it's like people go to the farmer's market, people cook at home. When they go out, it's it's a different appreciation for the process of cooking. When in New York, it's, you know, people just go out all the time and they have no idea what it actually takes to wash the dishes to wash the vegetables, to carry the stuff, to go to the market. I don't know, it's quite refreshing to see like young people going to, I don't know, we were at the farmer's market on Sunday and like seeing like, I don't know, all these people are just like buying stuff at the market to cook at home. And it's just, wow, this feels good. You know, so it's that's pretty refreshing. I, I really like that about here. And and I enjoy cooking for people that understand a little bit better, you know, what it is. And yeah, somebody was asking me this question the other day, and I was like, what? Like, how do you even pay attention to that, you know? When in New York, it's a little bit more difficult to get people to get their attention on some of the things. Yeah. We had a question up there. Coming. Vanna
0: White's coming. (laughs) Coming.
1: Some party going. That's the music.
2: Yeah, it's another party upstairs. Nice. We'll go up there after. Right. So you were saying um, that it's really hard
0: to find time to be inspired for new dishes. But what does inspire you to create new dishes for your restaurants?
1: Unexpected. Like it can be, it can be really awkward. It can be things that people. Are, don't like or things that I don't like or things that somebody very poorly did. You know, like I could have gone to a restaurant and I eat something really terrible. You know? And instead instead of focusing on like how terrible it was, it's just like real like just thinking it's like why? And like figuring I have to work with that uh, as 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 a campus. You know, like I see a crack on that. Uh, sometimes it's just come in a weird way you know like it, it's just like very quick like i have these flashes and i can taste things and put it in, into place in, in into place a lot of it is aesthetically it's aesthetical like i i just thinking about how it's gonna look you know it, it always has to be delicious no matter what but if it's if, if the aesthetic is not in place i i, I will not do it if I can, if I cannot put it in a way that I believe it's unusual or clean and bold, I, I, I would not mess around. But the inspiration—it's it, just—I mean, the product itself is—it's—it it's what it drives it. Um, but it's a couple of different elements. Yeah, the aesthetic, it, it plays a big role, even if I would never make it the priority, always to make a delicious come first. Um, new ingredients, but uh, as I say, but then absorb things like, uh, yeah, a terrible meal in some random place or...
2: Uh, Can you tell us the last dish that you created
1: and what inspired it? The last dish that created, I don't know, that I'm really proud of, uh, or maybe perhaps it's a little bit more unusual. Like, so we we play around with this scallop, dehydrated apples. It sounds complicated, but it's very simple. It sounds like oh. it, it has caviar and peanuts. I love peanuts, and so we get to dehydrate this peanuts. They get fermented. They get oh, they have this funkiness to it. Um, it also kind of tastes American in a way that, for me as a foreign, it's it's certain flavor combinations that I associated with here that maybe as an American you would not. But I think it tastes. American in a very clean and unusual way. So it's uh scallops, apple, peanut and caviar.
2: Mm. All layered.
1: Yeah, they're, they're all kind of layered in mm. their own way. Um but it's 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 delicious. Sounds it. They didn't make it in the book, it's not there.
2: Hey volume two, right? Yeah. Volume two. Volume two. Volume two. Any more questions? Oh, we got one. Oh, yep. Oh, I'm
0: curious what your favorite restaurants are in New York besides your own and LA as well.
1: Beside my own, um, favorite restaurants. Uh, it's a place uh, in New York called Hasaki. It's a Japanese place. It's been open for, I think, thirty-four years on 9th Street, and it's like an East Village institution. It's not. It's not that. It's not expensive. It's not cheap either. It's just like a, an average, consistent place. I'm a regular. I go there every week. And it's my place to go. Like, if I need a moment by myself, it's, that's the spot. I know they know me there. It's great. Yeah, you've been there.
2: It's been there, but it's also great to have a place in New York where it's been around for forever, It'll be around long after you leave. Yeah, There's no hassle and they just know who you are and they know what you like.
1: Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. You just say, it, yeah. They walk and, but also you don't really need to chat with yeah. everyone. You don't have to have small like,
2: talk. You're not going to run to people there.
1: Well, you're running to people, but everybody's kind of on their own. Yeah.
2: You're like, hey, what's up? You're yeah. like, I know why you're here. You know why I'm here. Yeah. Yeah. Estella's got that nice neighborhood vibe.
1: That it still has it. It can get a little crazy at times. Uh, which here in, I don't know, I like going to Chusta for breakfast, like really early in the morning, uh, you know, whenever if I, because I ended up staying nearby there. Um, I don't know, I have a really good meal at Babel.
2: Babel. It's in good. In downtown. Did you get but, that lamb nark shawarma?
1: Yeah, it was delicious. It's killer like, meal. Very tasty. Um, what was the name of this? I, I like bab- Babu? Or, it, it closed, right? Baru. Baru.
2: Oh, yeah, that's totally up your alley. Fermentation. Yeah. Small, a little weird. That, that definitely was, has that Issa vibe going. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it did. That good old vibe. Um, yeah, that place was good too. I'm yeah. trying to think what else in New York, but it's a China lot. Cafe. China Cafe. Yeah, we have a good meal there. Good meal. Szechuan
2: food. Yeah. Mission Maybe star, just, Chinese food. It's... Incredible, BYOB, BYOB, yeah, great design. You had a a final
0: question. Final question.
2: Um, You've talked about Estella in the book, but uh, tell us for those of us who haven't eaten at your other restaurants, what are the other two like, and how do they differentiate? And like you said, certain dishes are oh, this is wrong for here. This
1: what what separates them? What makes them each their own thing? Um. They're in different neighborhoods. Um, So Estela is on Nolita. Café Altro Paradiso is on Spring and Six, but it's on the other side of Sixth Avenue. So it's it's kind of like an awkward location. Uh, Estela is also in a kind of odd location because you had to go up the steps. Um, And then Flora Bar is on the upper east side on 75th and Madison. So the clientele are very different on each one. So catering to the community, that's something they that didn't talk about, but like understanding the clientele for me, it's very important. Like I, even if we push it on the Upper east Side and it's a contemporary art museum, it's an incredible building. You also have a certain type of clientele that expects certain things in a certain way. So, this exercise of figuring it out how to do what I wanna do in a way that they're gonna be comfortable with, it is something that I enjoy quite a bit. So I, I really like cooking out there, doing the cooking there because it's 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 like cooking tied up, you know. So you, you cannot go too far but it's still have to you know, you you have to preserve the integrity. Uh, and keep it interesting. Um, and Altro Paradiso is kind of like my favorite food to eat, which is Italian inspired food. It's just, it's what I grew up eating. Uh, yeah. And, and that's maybe my favorite spot to eat. I think I eat there more than anywhere else.
2: It's a great room to hang out in.
1: It's a beautiful space. Yeah. But also like funny, it's like, it was the second spot in you know, you open the second spot and everybody's like, well, but, but it's no Estela. I was like, no. Yeah. It's
2: not. It's not called Estela 2.
1: Yeah. If you open Estela 2, you get, you know. You get escabeche, escabeche for sure. Yeah. yeah no, no work. So yeah, each, each place has its own identity and it has to do with the location uh, where they are. Aesthetically, they are different. Um, and the food, if you... Yeah, pay a little bit of attention. You realize that it's a DNA within it, but we try to keep it different. Uh, I think Flora is a little bit cleaner and like a little bit lighter and more growing up. Uh, Estela is like a little bit more insolent and kind of ballsy uh, and big flavors. And Altro it's comforting. It's just like a little more home cooking in a way it has this uh, surprise the surprise element in there but it's a little more accessible you could go like three four times a week to to Altro which I do
2: yeah well I want to thank you for taking the time thank you everyone thank you for listening thank you thank you thank you get a copy of the cookbook yeah cook some food at home presents for everybody yeah holidays and thank you for House for hosting thank you
0: thank you guys we talk about food